an increase in attacks by Iranian-backed militias on U.S. personnel in the Middle East. What does it mean for American troops? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each day we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. I want to make it clear before anybody suggests that I'm somehow walking away from complicity by Iran. We know that they back and support and resource the Houthis. Same with Hamas, same with Hezbollah, same with these militia groups in Iraq and Syria. We've not backed away or shied away from calling it like we see it. A new submarine study hopes to better address industry issues, and the Air Force raises its enlistment age ceiling. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is a spooky October 31st, 2023. Just a quick note for you all, be sure to tune in for a special super spooky Halloween episode later today at noon. And make sure to eat a candy bar or your favorite candy, and may your Halloween be full of ghouls and goblins. Now back to the show. First up, we do have updated numbers coming out of the Middle East, which show a large increase in attacks on bases that house U.S. personnel in Syria and Iraq. Attacks rose significantly in October as the U.S. increased its support for Israel in its war with Hamas. Last Thursday, the Pentagon announced strikes against two sites in eastern Syria in response to the recent attacks. Those locations were linked to Iranians' Revolutionary Guard Corps. We know that these are Iranian-backed militia groups. Uh, that uh, are supported by Iran, and of course we hold uh, Iran responsible uh, for these groups. Military Times Pentagon Bureau Chief Megan Myers brings us the latest updates about U.S. troops and attacks on them in the region. So as of Monday, October 30th, uh, the Pentagon has counted 23 at least total drone attacks on um, bases in Iraq and Syria where there are U.S. troops housed. They're estimating it's been at least 14 in Iraq and at least nine in Syria. Um, And so that's about double from last week. And these attacks have been since October 17th. So while there's been more attacks in this past week, there have not been more injuries. The total injury count is the same as it was a week ago, still 21 minor injuries, and those troops return to duty soon after uh, being treated. And these attacks are exclusively or at least mainly from Iranian-backed militias. Yes, that's the understanding, um, which is why last week the retaliatory strike that the U.S. took in Syria was on an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, facility. Did U.S. officials anticipate that the attacks from these groups would continue or that the two strikes the U.S. military conducted was enough of a deterrence against further attacks? They are maintaining that they will take steps to strike back, you know, when it suits them, when they decided they want to do it. They are not making any sort of, uh, you know, grand statements about annihilating anybody. These are all very, like, symbolic strikes back. And the the really, it seems like the goal is to instead do, do an even better job of preventing some of these attacks. So there have been a couple of dozen attempts, but only a couple of those drones that flew over these bases actually detonated, which is why the injury count has been so low. Most of them have been shot down. Um, and now there are more air defense assets moved into the Middle East to help out with this problem for the overall overall force posture protection. Um, so hopefully, even if there are more drone attacks coming in and they do anticipate that this is going to continue, they won't be able to, uh, to detonate because they'll just be shot down. 
Thanks, Megan. The U.S. response to support Israel has included moving numerous assets into the region. Two carrier strike groups and an amphibious ready group with the Marine Expeditionary Unit were moved to the region, and 2,000 U.S. troops were put on 24-hour prepared-to-deploy orders. Another important story, the highest military court has largely overturned the conviction of a Coast Guard chief who sent inappropriate messages to other senior enlisted leaders in a group text. For more on how this ruling will set precedent for service members going forward, Navy Times editor Jeff Zazulowitz joins the episode. So Jeff, could you take us through the details of this case? Yeah, sure, Zaman. Thanks for having me. So basically, in a ruling uh, released last week by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which is kind of the highest military court in the land, they overturned the 2019 uh, conviction of a Coast Guard chief who had been convicted for violating Article 91 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or UCMJ, after he sent three inappropriate text messages to a chief's mess group thread Uh, while himself and these other chiefs were all assigned to the heavy icebreaker Polar Star. Uh, The three texts in question were pretty undeniably uh, juvenile material. In one, he he took a a photo of one of the chiefs and did a, quote, crude drawing of male genitalia, end quote, on the photo of that other chief, according to the uh, appeal court's ruling. In another one, he... uh, sent a a pic of a scantily clad man to the thread after a senior chief had uh, missed their chief's call and basically suggested, hey, this is why senior chief missed the chief's call. And then in a third one, he basically, uh, as it pertained to a a female chief, he wrote, uh, he posted a photo of her from her yearbook. I have no clue where he got that photo. And he wrote, voted most likely to steal your B word or he was convicted in 2020 and the chief was busted down to E6 and given 30 days of restriction as well as a reprimand. The chief in question, uh, chief machinery technician Fernando Brown has since retired according to his civilian attorney. And what did this appeals court decide? Um, What kind of makes this case kind of interesting is two facets of the appeals uh, court ruling are going to set precedent, legal precedent for service members going forward. When you have a high court like the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Arms Forces kind of interpreting or ruling on, you know, what a piece of law like Article 91 of the UCMJ says, when they make that ruling, you know, lower courts will be taking that into account. I also have outside attorneys telling me that, you know, there could be convening authorities and units who might look at the appeal court's ruling on this case when they're deciding whether to charge somebody uh, under Article 91. Um, And just to be clear, Article 91 uh, is a charge for insubordinate conduct toward a warrant officer, a non-commissioned officer, or a petty officer. So it's basically, uh, you know, not for a, a formal commissioned officer offense. It's more, you know, a variety of insubordinate conduct for for enlisted folks and and warrants. They overturned two of the three uh, charge specifications for which the chief had been convicted under Article 91. And what's important about this for the rank and file service member is that two facets of their ruling will set precedent for service members going forward. First of all, the court found that a military member can be convicted under Article 91 uh, for disrespectful conduct towards a warrant, non-commissioned or petty officer, 
uh, even when the disrespect occurs outside the physical presence of the victim. So that kind of speaks to the phone chat thread nature of this case. Um, it's basically setting the precedent that, you know, it's criminally actionable, actionable if you disrespect somebody via text thread or electronic means. You don't have to be face to face with your petty officer to potentially be charged for disrespecting them. But interestingly, too, uh, on the second part, the appeals court ruled that troops can only be held criminally liable if they conveyed such disrespectful language while the victim was basically on duty. And that was a big piece of two of the three charge specifications getting thrown out uh, for Brown's case. Um, Only one of the three involved the chief victim being actually on duty when uh, Brown sent the inappropriate text message. So one of the chiefs uh, was working down in dry dock when Brown sent the kind of offensive message directed at him. So that chief was basically doing his job when the infraction occurred. So that conviction stuck. But the appeals court threw out the other two instances uh, because the chief and senior chief who were kind of the victims of, of Brown's mockery were not on the job when Brown actually sent the the messages. One of the messages was sent after working hours at about 7.40 at night. And the other one was sent when the female chief was on convalescent leave. So again, the court ruled that you can get in trouble for this uh, if you disrespect a, an NCO uh, via your phone and, and you don't have to be you know disrespecting them right to their face. But they also apparently now, based on this ruling, have to be on duty when they receive or take in the disrespectful uh, conduct. In other news, the Air Force increased its age limit for new enlisted and officer recruits by three years. Airmen and Guardians now have until the age of 42 to join the services. Here's why it matters. The changes arrive around a month after the Air Force missed its recruiting target for the first time since 1999. The Air Force fell roughly 2,700 airmen short of its recruitment goal this year, and the Space Force surpassed its enlisted recruit benchmark. Service recruiters continue to fight a number of headwinds on the way to reaching their recruiting targets. That includes a strong job market and declining youth interest in military service. Air Force officials believe the age limit will attract around 50 more recruits each year. The service has also softened its rules about tattoos and past drug use to lower barriers to entry. They believe the changes will not compromise the quality of recruits. The Air Force last revised its age cutoff for service from 27 to 39 in 2014. Hundreds of recruits in their late 30s have joined the ranks since. Also on your radar today, the U.S. submarine industry is under strain, but a new, more comprehensive study may help assess the industry's needs. Defense News Naval Warfare reporter Megan Eckstein joins the episode. So, Megan, what did this new study do that previous studies haven't in terms of looking at the U.S. submarine industry? The Navy has conducted a handful of studies looking at the submarine industrial base over recent years. The basic idea of the past ones is that the Navy needs to be building two Virginia-class attack submarines and one Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine every single year, starting in the year 2026. So these past studies have looked at What does it take for the two shipyards to be able to build this many submarines? What would it take for the parts suppliers to build enough parts to uh, contribute to the production of what's called a one plus two rate, the one Columbia and the two Virginias? 
But the industrial base is still behind, even despite um, what's been $6.3 billion in executed and proposed investments. Um, despite all this money going into the industrial base, they're still running behind. And so what this newest study does, it's called Submarine Industrial Base 25, uh, because it informs the fiscal 2025 budget. Um, so what SIB 25 did is it said, okay, these same companies are not just having to do the one plus two Columbia and Virginia production, but they're also being asked to build more spare parts so that they can help improve the readiness of the existing submarines. They're also being asked to do more work to contribute to the AUKUS arrangement with Australia and the UK. And so this is really looking more holistically at their entire workload. It's not just the new submarines that they'll have to produce but it's all this extra work, which is putting more burden on the exact same companies. So the idea here was to really understand the full scope of the work. That way, the Navy could understand the full scope of the investments they would need to make. Could you describe what are the goals of U.S. submarine manufacturing going forward? There are a number of moving parts and goals they want to achieve, right? There's a handful of problems that the submarine industrial base has today that the Navy is trying to solve with these efforts. Uh, Part of it was just, you know, with the COVID pandemic, um, not only was there a big disruption in the year 2020, but it led a lot of the older, more experienced workers to retire. Um, So there was this huge shift from having a very experienced and very efficient workforce to now having to try to figure out how to hire and retain a bunch of younger workers who have much less experience, which means, you know, they make more mistakes. They have to go back and do rework to fix those mistakes. And so there's just a lot of things that are contributing to a slowdown of production. Um, What the Navy's looking at, they have a handful of pillars that um, these investments are focused around. Some of it has to do with workforce training um, and finding ways to help workers who are coming into the submarine production sector for the very first time, help them get up to speed faster. Um, There's new ways of training to get people better quicker. Um, But there's other things. There's looking at new technologies that can help workers do their work better, um, whether it's you know robots that can assist in some tasks, whether it's additive manufacturing, um, there's any number of new technologies that they're looking at. They're also looking at expanding the facilities at the two shipyards, which are um, General Dynamics Electric Boat in Connecticut and HII's Newport News Shipbuilding in Virginia. So expanding some of the facilities there Another line of effort is actually taking some work away from those two yards and allowing other companies to do it. It's called strategic outsourcing. And the idea is that there's just not enough space to build, you know, big steel modules at these two shipyards because they're trying to do too much work at one time. So they're looking at having other companies that are set up to build these massive modules and then ship them to the two shipyards um, where they can go into final assembly. But uh, Austell USA is one example of a company where a lot of investment money has gone into setting them up to take some of this workload away from the big shipbuilders um, just to help with the workflow. So yeah, there's billions of dollars flowing into all of these efforts um, really aimed at trying to get workers up to speed and trying to make the process of building and moving parts around more efficient. And now here's some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. Marine Commandant General Eric Smith was hospitalized following a medical emergency Sunday evening. The Marine Corps provided no additional details about his condition or the medical emergency at the time of this recording. 
Slovakia's new government announced a big deployment of police and armed forces along the border with Hungary yesterday. The move is an effort to prevent growing numbers of migrants from entering the country. Israeli troops and tanks pushed deeper into Gaza yesterday and freed a soldier held captive by Hamas militants. Hamas and other militant groups are believed to be holding some 240 captives, which include men, women, and children. And Task and Purpose reported that another American military veteran has been confirmed to have died fighting in Ukraine. David Lee Coate served in the Michigan Army National Guard. He was reportedly killed by a Russian drone earlier this month. And on this day in history, in 1864, amid the Civil War, Congress admitted Nevada as the 36th state. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Megan Myers, Jeff Zazulowitz, Jaime Morcurio, and Megan Eckstein. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day.